Father God, Lord, it's a great blessing to be here this morning. Thank you that you've called each one of us, each individual one of us, to be here today. Lord, many of us may be in the, in the habit of coming here every Sunday morning. But as we open our hearts to praise you, Father, and as we pray to you, as we read your word, and as we are encouraged by words of excitation, Lord, we know it's not just a habit. We're here because we want to be here, Father, to give you glory and to join with our brothers and sisters in fellowship in remembering your Son. So be with us and bless us, Lord, and guide us through this morning. Amen. Uh, Neil has some announcements for us. Gladys is uh, back in hospital at Manchester Royal, apparently. Uh, she's taken in last night. Debbie has information about that. Pete Griffiths saw the consultant at Christie's last week, and they've decided to stop the chemo, the chemotherapy treatment he's having, in order to minimise the side effects. He's had two of the four treatments which were scheduled, um, so that should have a significant impact on his, uh, on his cancer. He's due to have a CT scan tomorrow to assess uh, progress. If you'd like to visit, please phone first. Christine has been unwell this week as well and uh, has had a course of antibiotics which may have left her feeling, which have left her feeling rather flat. Simon and Claire have settled into their new home and have had some flowers from everyone at the Bethel and there is a card to sign on the bath if you'd like to uh, sign that for them. We have brothers and sisters, don't we, who are struggling with health, health issues at the moment. Um, please think about practical ways uh, in which you and us collectively can, can help them and show God's love to them. And we're thinking of um, Pauline uh, and Jack and Mary. It's great to see Jack and Mary here. Uh, Norman and Margaret, Gladys, as we've mentioned, and Marion. And again, great to see Marion here. So, yeah, just think about what we can do to assist. Thank you. That's all. Thanks, Neil. So we're going to have our pastoral prayer um, now. Is there anyone who you'd like to remember together? Okay. If you just remain seated, we'll, we'll bow our heads and pray together. Father God, Lord, as Neil was reading out all those announcements, all the plans that we're making for this week, it's another busy week, Father. But we pray together now, Lord, that we will not lose our first love amidst all the arrangements, that we will always remember as we work our way through the week why we are doing it. Father, you have redeemed us. You bought us at a price, that price we remember today. And Lord, you've called us to follow you. And all the different things that we're going to be doing this week, Father, are our way of saying thank you and our way of trying to bring about your will. And we pray for your blessing, Father, and your guidance, and your energy and your enthusiasm as we go about our day-to-day -day lives. And Father, we have people, brothers and sisters, who we love, who especially need your, your love at this time. Gladys is back in hospital, Father, and we pray that you'll be with her, that she'll know that you're with her, and be with, with those brothers and sisters who can care for her and keep her company. And Father, as Pete's treatment continues, we pray for a blessing on the doctors, Lord, that they will make the right decisions for Pete, and that he will remain strong, and that Christine will remain strong in all the family, that you'll be with them, bless them, and let them know your love for them. And especially as Pete has a CT scan, Father, be with him then as well. 
and Simon Clare set up their new home in Kent, Father. We pray that you will, you will bless them too. And we pray that they will find spiritual support, that they will be close to you in everything that they do. And all our brothers and sisters, Lord, those who we mention on a weekly basis and those who, who aren't mentioned, be close to each one of us, Father. You know what's best for us. You know what we need. Sometimes it's not what we expect, but we know and we trust in you. Bless us, Lord, each one of us richly. In the name and the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing a prayer now. The words are familiar. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. David Webborn is going to be encouraging us um, today and he's going to be basing his thoughts on the um, opening of Nehemiah. So Trevor's going to read for us um, Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. Morning everyone. Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and in its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength in your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, 
May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take? And when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I'd said nothing to the Jews, or the priests, or nobles, or officials, or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me, and what the king had said to me. And they replied, Let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing? They said, Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you've no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Thank you very much, Trev. David's theme is going to be redemption. So before he speaks to us, we're going to sing, There is a Redeemer, Jesus God's own Son, Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One.
David, would you come and encourage us, please? Well, a very good morning, everyone. I'm going to start this morning with an apology, because I'm afraid I've got a really tickly cough that's, um, that's been giving me a bit of trouble this morning, so I hope I don't break out into a coughing fit, but please be, bear with me if I do. For those of you who are at the, the quiz evening that we had last night, I've got a little bit of an extension to the, the sports round for you, first of all, this morning. How many of you can name the, the year and the venue when that took place? I hope you can see it all properly. Any, any ideas? Shout it out. It is in France. Johnny? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. And, and another one for you. What, what, what was the score the moment that Mr. Beckham was striking that ball? Can any of you remember that? It's a bit more of a tricky one. 2-1, yes. So, you're probably thinking, what on earth has Mr. Beckham got to do with my exhortation this morning? Well, for those of you who can remember the aftermath of France 98, we'll know that David Beckham was subject to much discontent from football fans across the nation, really, after he was sent off against Argentina. And everywhere he went with Manchester United, he was ridiculed and booed, as only British football fans know how to. But if you then fast forward three years to October 2001, suddenly Mr Beckham is, is the hero of the nation as he scored that free kick in the last minute of, of that World Cup qualifier against Greece to send England through to the next World Cup. And in doing that, he was redeemed in the eyes of those ever-hard-to-please England football fans. And it's this theme of redemption, as Charles has already said, that I would like to pick up on today as we, as we turn our eyes on our Lord Jesus. And I'd like to hang our thoughts really on, on three of those verses that we've just read in Nehemiah. And it's in ne- Nehemiah chapter 1. I'll just read them again for you, starting from verse 8. And it's a beautiful prayer of ne- Nehemiah's. And he, he says, Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. God has redeemed his people Israel. And he's done so time and time again throughout all their history in the Old Testament. God is a faithful God, as we've sung together this morning. And we have that demonstrated, really, right the way through the Old Testament and in the Old Covenant. So I'd like to really start by by winding the clock back, really, from the time of Nehemiah. And just look, firstly, at just some of the examples of God's faithfulness to his people and his love in redeeming them from their sins. As I'm sure you all all know, the Old Testament starts with the law, and God gives the children of Israel a set of guidelines on how to live their lives. He instigates true worship, and perhaps most significantly, a means of forgiveness from sin through the shedding of innocent blood. Now, the problem with the law was that the forgiveness that it offered was not permanent. Uh, the sacrifice, that we, uh, the instructions to sacrifice a bull or a, a young goat or a lamb, 
That was essential for the forgiveness of a particular sin. But unfortunately, it was required every time that person or the nation sinned. And you see, the problem with the children of Israel was that they were human. And unfortunately, they couldn't help but sin and disobey the commandments that God had given them. So let's pick up some examples of, of, of their, their ways uh, in the book of Judges. They've had a, a, pretty, a pretty good time of things as, as they've carried out their conquest of the land of, land of Israel. There are a few hiccups here and there, but really it all then does go to pot really after, after the death of Joshua. So let's pick it up in, in Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, and I'll start from verse 11. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger, because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them, He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemies as long as the judge lived, for the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now essentially that is a summary of what the book of Judges is all about. And as as we sort of progress through this this period of Israel's history, we get these cycles in, in the people's attitude towards God. Yes, you have the high points when the people are under the leadership of a judge, whether it be Deborah or Gideon or Samson, and through whom the power of God works in delivering the people from their oppressors. But as it says here, at the end of, of that judge's time, it seems almost, almost immediately the Israelites turn away from God, and their faith wavers and they fall into temptation. God tests the faith of the people in these in-between times, and more often than not, they fail miserably. But look at what happens every time they do fail. Because whilst their faith and their trust may have failed, God remains faithful. God is constant. And it is because of God's unfailing love for his people and because of his promises that he gave to to Abraham that he redeems them and saves them from his enemies. We have the, the, the classic example of God raising up Gideon and saving his people from the Midianites. Have a look at verse 18 uh, of chapter 2 again, because it's, it says there that the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed them. God had compassion because, because of their situation. They were his people, his children, and he couldn't bear to see, see his people suffering. 
And that faithfulness of God is not only true in this time, the judges, but it's equally true for us here today as, as his sons and his daughters. And we're going to, we're going to be thinking more about that as, as we bring our thoughts to, to the bread and wine. But before we do that, let's just fast forward a few, a few centuries now to the, to the time of the kings. Now, I've been, I've been reading the, the kings, uh, kings and Chronicles fairly recently, and I think it's fair to say that things generally go from bad to worse here. Because, yes, we've got a few of the good guys. We've got, we've got Samuel, we've got David, we've got Hezekiah, and a few others, the prophets as well. But equally, we've got some truly, truly nasty people thrown in here as well. And towards the end of, of the two kingdoms of Judah and Israel, it almost seems that, that God's people press a self-destruct button. And particularly, at, if we look at two, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, we'll just briefly have a look at the last three kings of, kings of Judah here, because they really are some, some ugly characters. Let's, let's go in at verse 5 of chapter 36. This is, this is King, King Jehoiakim. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 11 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God. And he ends up, we don't hear much more about him to be honest. All all we hear about is because of his evil, he ended up being carted off by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. The next king is Jehoiachin in, in verse 9. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem only for three months and ten days. And he again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now some of the kings uh, of, of Judah and Israel, it says that they did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But these kings here, they did evil in the eyes, in the eyes, of, the, eyes of the Lord, and this guy only lasted for three months. And finally, the kingdom of Judah really ends in a, in a flurry of wickedness and destruction with, with King Zedekiah. I'm reading from verse 12. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord his God and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke the word of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him take an oath in God's name. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers despised his words and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over over to Nebuchadnezzar. He He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple, and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the places and destroyed everything of value there. So why, why, why share all this misery and all this destruction with you this morning? Well, this brings us neatly back to the time, time of Ezra and, and of Nehemiah. They were two men of faith who lived in the faithless generation, as we've read. 
two, two men through whom God once again redeems his people. Because even after all that, especially all that stuff that we've just read there, all the evil and sin with the house of God destroyed and the people scattered from the land, God remains faithful. And here's that, that prayer of Nehemiah that we read at the start. And Ezra and, and a few others, they, they take on the, the role of, of rebuilding the temple and restoring true worship, the worship that God instigated right at the start, back in, in the land of Israel. And Nehemiah, well, he takes on the role of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And let's go to Nehemiah chapter 12, because through the grace of God, the, tem- the temple is finished and the walls of Jerusalem are finished. And in Nehemiah chapter 12 and verse 43, it says, and Ezra is with them at this point, that they're all gathered there. Verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. So the old covenant documented for us in the Old, in the Old Testament is, is a wonderful example of God's unfailing love for his people despite all their, all their misgivings and all their, all their disobedience. His unfailing love for his people and of the grace through which they were redeemed. And under the new covenant, that same grace has been unconditionally given to each one of us. And I'd like to, to bring this down to, to a, a, personal, a personal level now. The grace of God is a free gift from our Father in heaven. And it's only, of course, made possible because of what Jesus did for us. And we're going to remember that shortly. Now, I'd like to share something with you now. It's, it's an image that I find incredibly powerful in terms of how I view my relationship with God. And it comes, it comes from a book that Lizzie and I have at home. And it's called What's So Amazing About Grace? And uh, I'm sorry, Philip and Dorothy, you were at Hoddesdon this year. You would have seen this before. But I've, I've got a few props here. I'd like you to imagine that this, this piece of string here is a symbol of our relationship with God, with, with God, God at the top and us at the bottom. Now, that's, that's all well and good at the moment. But the problem, problem with it is, is that we, we are human. Just like the children of Israel, we are human and naturally we sin. And our relationship with God... It becomes broken when we sin. Just bear with me a second here. When we sin, our relationship with God is broken. But this is where, where God's grace kicks in. Because just as God is faithful to his people Israel, so God is faithful to us, his adopted sons and daughters. And it's because of grace that as soon as that string becomes broken, it is fixed. Now, have a look at that that string now admittedly it's not perfect it had been broken and and it's had to be repaired but that's not the end of the story because just like the people of Israel as we've read in in, in Judges in particular one sin is not enough for them they continue continue to sin and continue to to be forgiven and so with one break the string will break again and break again now have a look at this this second piece of string I could bring up an old favourite Blue Peter catchphrase, but I'm not going to. Now, that second piece of string there started, started off life just, just like this, this piece of string. You can see, see the two of them there on our coffee table. 
Yes, but look at the, the difference in, in, in the two pieces of string. With each sin and each break, the string is repaired. And it's because of grace, the distance, if you see the length of the string there, with each break, the distance between us and with God reduces. And it draws us closer to God. And that's the power of the grace of God. It is an unstoppable force that because of of what Jesus has done for us, it can't help but draw us closer into, into the embrace of our Father in heaven. And just as any father forgives his child, even if he or she carves her name into, into, into his car or spills, spills fruit juice all over the keyboard of the new family computer, he, he, can't, he can't hold a grudge against them forever. And, and God will never forsake us in that, in that sense. As I've mentioned before, that this, this grace factor is, a, is, a, is only made possible because of what Jesus has done for us. And, and it's that, that, of course, that we're all here to remember now. We spoke and we have been thinking about the Old Covenant and how that actually the law had a problem with it. In the sacrifices, it could only provide a temporary means of forgiveness. And that, of course, has all changed for us as we live today in the freedom that Christ gives us in the New, new Covenant. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 10. These, these are words that I'm sure we all, we all know well. Hebrews chapter 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And just move forward to verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which could never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. (coughs) Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. God gave us his son, the Lord Jesus, not only as as the perfect example of how we should live each day, but as the enduring sacrifice the ultimate demonstration of his faithfulness and the means by which the string that represents our relationship with God and is so easily broken is just as easily repaired. Let's turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1 as, as, as we really come now to, to focus our hearts on the cross. Colossians chapter 1 and in verse 12 
Paul says, let us give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the Son of God's unfailing love for us. And it is through his blood, the blood that we will share and sits here before us in, the, in this cup, that we, we, we sit here in doing that, we sit here as the redeemed. And for, for me personally, I think one of the, the most powerful images that I take from, from the cross happens as soon as, soon as our Saviour gives up his spirit. And it's described, described in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, going at verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. And this is, this is the, the, the image I'd like, like us to think about now. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. It's that image of Jesus' side being pierced. And I imagine that almost as soon, soon as that spear pierced his side, the blood literally gushed from his body, body in such abundance, almost like it was, was flowing, flowing from him and flowing down, down the hill that they were on. Because, you see, unlike the blood of the bull or, or, or of a young goat, which could only forgive one sin, the blood that we're talking about now is the blood of the Lamb of God, the blood that was spilled once and for all to forgive all sins. And as it flowed, it flowed from a broken body, a body that was broken so that our string and our relationship might be repaired. So as, as we take this bread and as we drink this wine, let us as the, as the redeemed in Christ step with boldness, as it says in Hebrews 10, into the most holy place and into the kingdom of the Son of the Father's love for which we have been qualified. Andrew is now going to come and give thanks for the bread for us. Thank you, Andrew. Father in heaven, when Jesus said, it is finished on that cross, what was finished was the dominance of darkness and evil over our world. That through your grace, the cords that are so often broken can be retired and we can be reunited with you through Jesus. And we think of that now as we come and break bread. We've been thinking too about redemption, Father. 
And as we take this bread, which is real, we can feel it and touch it and taste it, so too is that redemption. So too is your grace. It's just as real, though we can't see it. But help us to trust in it as we look to these wonderful things. So may this bread remind us of your love, because so often, Father, we feel far away from you. But help us to turn to you and, with your grace, be able to tie the knots again that bind us to you. And help us to realise that whatever we do, be it ever so small in your name, thrills you and pleases you and helps us to feel your love. Your love is pouring out to us now this morning, Father, and we thank you for that. So as we take this bread, make of us strength to try harder to, to serve you and to feel our redemption as a real thing as we go about our daily lives. In his name now we offer our prayer. Amen. So we'll share together the, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave to redeem us from our sins. Neil is going to offer our thanks to the wine. Our Father, we thank you that uh, from the beginning of time you have had a plan and an intention to redeem us. Thank you that though you, you know we let you down and we sin, you still love us and you want to forgive us. And we thank you for sending Jesus uh, to demonstrate that to us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your, your willing and loving sacrifice. Thank you for the astonishing grace and love and mercy and forgiveness that you show us. As we share this wine together and remember uh, your blood that was shed to cleanse us, to make us clean, to make us white in your Father's presence, we, uh, we ask that you'll help us as we keep sinning and you keep forgiving us, uh, that we will learn and understand more each time the, the depth of your love and that it will bring us closer to you <coughs> and to your Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we will share this, this wine which symbolises the blood which our Lord Jesus so freely gave. I was struck by a couple of things that uh, David said. The first was as he, as he was going through that sketch of... Uh, of the history of Israel, it just struck me just how long-suffering God is, how faithful he is to his people in spite of everything. And even at the end there, when we get those three uh, dubious characters, those last few kings, where it, it said that the only reason why God actually took them into exile was because there was no other remedy. He had exhausted all other possibilities of changing them. And the, the second thing that struck me was just that image of of how we are brought closer to God by his grace, that God is so amazing that he can even turn our failure into something positive that draws us closer to him. And so with that in mind, just before we finish, we're going to read a, a small section of our, our New Testament reading, which is all about what it, what it is to make that string shorter. And so Sheila is going to read for us um, Colossians chapter 3 and the first 17 verses.
Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, then, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Jew or Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And above all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Sheila. Uh, Richard Gaston is going to close in prayer for us. After we've sung our, our last hymn, The Redeemed of the Lord Shall Return. Father, please help us to go from here and carry on telling your redemption story. The story that is told of king's palaces and football fields. A story that speaks from the past into the future, saying a new start is always possible. Help us to seize the vision that so many others have grasped hold of. The vision that your city can be rebuilt, that your kingdom can be real on earth. <coughs> Help us to go away inspired, Father, and to make that vision real. Amen.